Welcome back to Ending the Myth. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And together we are winding our way through the horrors of American history with the help of Greg Grannon's book, The End of the Myth. Today we're here to celebrate being 10 episodes closer to the end of history. Wow. That is <laughs> wild. And if these threats of nuclear war keep escalating, maybe the end of the world? Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> why not use this opportunity to stall for time with another Q&A episode? Hey, woohoo! <laughs> oh, yeah. We asked the freaks on Discord, which you can be a part of too by joining the Mechanical Freak Patreon for near five bucks a month, the cost of a Starbucks latte, for their <laughs> questions about the first half of the 20th century. And let me just say, Brian, they delivered. <laughs> Hell yeah. Thank you, freaks out there, for sending us just uh, the most thoughtful questions that two professors could ever hope to ask for. And <laughs> But before we get into that, we recorded a lot of episodes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I hate to remind the freaks that this was supposed to be three episodes originally. <laughs> I was like, two episodes originally two. expanded to three. Yeah, no, we were like, all right, well, let's make it. Let's make a compromise here. Let's give ourselves some padding space. We got to do three episodes, you know, Look, just to like get the full idea of Grandin's work. Yeah, I mean, this we could probably talk about this book for at least three to four hours. Yeah, uh, we are now twenty eight hours into this. <laughs> 28? Are you kidding me? We're 28 hours <laughs> Oh my <in>. god. <laughs> and uh, given that we've made it this far, uh, how are you feeling about our journey through U.S. history? What is the vibe so far? <laughs> I mean, how do you say that the vibe is good? I mean, I mean, the vibe <laughs> is like awful, like objectively. But you knew that. You're, you know the end of this book. You know how this goes. So obviously, like the the path to like reach this like cursed existence, which we're now living in, can only be the path of just extremely cursed, awful series of events that happen on top of each other. And like to dive deep into that, to like actually explore stuff that I didn't even know about before, like wasn't even revealed in Grandin's book, um, has been horrifying. However. <laughs> The podcasting experience has been sublime, has been incredible, <laughs> magnificent. It's been a treat. It's it's what when I wake up in the morning and I'm ready to pod, I feel like there is purpose and meaning in this cruel, cold world. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, we're both getting matching born to pod tattoos now. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all done in was an ASCII code or whatever. We're gonna get it on our forearms. Yes, yes, you know. yes we're gonna get the hex. We're gonna yeah, get the hex uh, yeah. code on our forearm. Yeah, yeah. A, a la Elizabeth Warren and her followers. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> We could have spent the entire World War II episode just talking about that, honestly. We should have. We should have just <laughs> talked about that and used that as the rhetorical device to discuss World War II. Elizabeth you know Warren staffers getting Holocaust tests. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Uh, scrap all of y'all's questions. This is what we're talking about for the rest of the yep. time. No, no, no. <laughs> this, is, this is the hex cast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You know, we would get so many first-time listeners on the hex cast who then 10 <laughs> seconds in immediately stop listening but yeah yeah i can't wait that 
stay tuned for our future. That's going to be the sequel to Ending the Myth as the Hexcast. Yeah. Well, we need to like do growth hacking to like pitch our podcast to publications. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll just like catfish a lot of uh, a lot of people into Hell listening yeah. to our show. <laughs> uh, well, you know. We're 28 hours in, and we're 10 episodes since our last Q&A. We've covered the first half of the 20th century. Uh, do you got, like, a, a favorite episode or topic of any of that we've covered so far? Honestly, I do. Uh, this I was, like, reviewing just these episodes from, like, when we uh, started, like, from our last Q&A to now. And honestly, we, I mean gotta hand it to us we kind of snapped man like there's a lot of great great content out of there a lot of classics a lot of like, real classics uh like my i have personal favorites i mean i think that the series that we did on the progressive era in general was really great uh the fact that we did five whole episodes including like the bonus content was just um awesome but i really loved the last episode that we did on the progressive era um 11.5 like the nadir of race relations um i think that that was just like really well done. We covered chapter nine uh, in Grandin's mm-hmm. book too. Uh, so I would say it's that one. And then for me also, um, when we talked about fascism in episode 14, uh, that discussion, which, you know, covered chapter 10 subsequently, I think that that one I'm like really, really proud of because we did it in a more like loose and open-ended style. And we were talking about a book that actually is not um the end of the myth right so i think like a lot of well, things a rare occasion for the very rare occasion to like not talk about the book um but you know we read we like on the side basically we kind of took it upon ourselves to, like read um you know this entirely new book fascism and social revolution by r palm dot and i when you first gifted it to me i was like okay like how much are we gonna commit to this is this gonna be like you know worth the time we're already doing so much and my point is that a lot of things could have gone wrong with that episode uh, or like <laughs> just couldn't have like hit the way it did. But everything basically, I think, came together and sounded just um, incredible. And the raw discussion that, that was just like raw discussion that we were having on the book, which turned out to, I think, be like one of our highest quality uh, episodes and something that I'm just like uh, really proud of, too. Um, something that's still accessible, but kind of goes deep into um, the theory and really just gives us a basis on like what like fascism is and uh, and tying that back into the central premise. I think all of that really just worked uh, really well. So episode 14 and 11 and a half are my favorites if I had to choose. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, both great episodes. Uh, episode 14 uh, reminded me a lot of the episode. Uh, I think it's episode nine or 10. It's what's so progressive about eras. Anyways, yes, episode. yes, exactly. Uh, which I think are, you know, maybe slightly deeper, more, you know, theoretical discussions about like how American society is formed in the 20th century and about the forces at play and stuff like that. That you know, I am proud of those episodes. I, I think they're both very good. Um, you know, in this batch, you know, episodes uh that i also really liked i very much enjoyed episode 12 on the politics of travel with a oh, yes. uh, friend of the show and historian ryan archibald mainly because uh there's a lot of stuff in his dissertation and that we talked about in there that uh, i was genuinely unaware of and yeah it found really interesting and exciting and i kind of like sometimes too when you you get a topic that uh 
it covers something you're interested in, but in an angle that you're not used to seeing it, which I don't think that we think about travel that much you know like mm-hmm. why we have passports like how that's regulated you know what are the politics of airports as like security zones and things like that i think that's something that we you know uh if you're like most americans you never leave the country so that's you know it's not <laughs> an issue uh or if you do it's just like oh well, this is just so uh, you know this is just part of life or whatever and you forget that like no historical just forces how it have is. been at play yeah exactly <laughs> Exactly. I thought that was really good. And I must give a shout out to special guest Richard Wolf for being the best guest the show's ever had. Icon. I think Steve said a total of seven words that entire. (laughs) You know, Brian, maybe, maybe like for like a a patron exclusive, which you can join for a mere $5 a month, um, we can maybe post a screenshot of that, uh, (laughs) of the wavelengths on each of our tracks, because it is truly phenomenal to see a guest basically carry up. 99.9% 99.9% of like all of the talking then you can see like us like trying to get words in so there's like a little like sound blip visually <laughs> it rocked it was amazing um you know guest of the year richard wolf uh another fantastic episode by the way hey we didn't need to say anything that's perfect yeah no it was well it was a well-received episode he 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 said it and you know what like you said brian more guests should be like richard wolf let our jobs be easy just let let us like kick back for a week and (laughs) it's kind of like it's kind of like you know when the when the teacher rolls in the rolls in the tv for class that day you Mm -hmm. know they're just like you know they're they're kicking back. They're they're yeah. taking the day. You know, <laughs> let, let them let them watch the Magic School Bus. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, also, as a guest, uh, never misstate anything or anything like that that we have to edit out later. That way, there's zero editing, as there was on that episode. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. basically, once the sound levels were good, I was like, all right, we're, we're good. Yeah, it was it was yeah. tight. Uh, you know, also, you know, big shout out to our friend of the show again, Justin Roll, to come back and talk about Truman with us. I for thought, four hours. It was yeah, amazing. For some reason, I thought me and Justin, having spent eight hours talking about Truman previously, that we maybe had exhausted our desire <laughs> to talk about this man, <laughs> only to spend another four hours talking about him again. <laughs> <laughs> the the discussion period that is usually comprises maybe 30 minutes of our sh- like regular show right that we'll do mm-hmm. in ending the myth we were two hours into like and not even reached discussion so we we're like oh we got to just make discussion its own bonus episode and i was thinking that okay the bonus episode because we don't want to have a episode that's like two and a half hours long like two hours is kind of like a nice cutoff for one episode i was like all right the bonus is gonna be like 20 to 30 minutes but no (laughs) no no we we had a lot to say about that discussion right and i think that that was so cool that justin like wrote that out uh and you know i mean how how often do you have someone who um not not only is just like you know a friend and friend of the show but also just personal friend uh come on but you know like your guys's knowledge and expertise on Truman truly like I think like makes you guys like like categorical experts like which is amazing <laughs> a disturbing like at this point the indeed. amount the amount of reading that you do you guys like actually can like claim that title I think <laughs> a disturbing indeed um and very funny I mean just another 
quick note on those episodes uh all of us have jobs and i think for those yes, episodes yes. Pre- we recorded that over two different days and i think we each time like look we gotta have a hard out at you know x time we were 9 getting like meeting notifications or like when someone else yeah. was talking we'd like kind of like shake the mouse on our computer so that we'd appear like online at least you know um, like i mean it was yeah. getting to that point where it was literally like we were just like recording that on the clock uh, because yeah. it was like going long we bare minimum blew an hour past every hard out that we had <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, so thanks to Justin for uh, making his uh, life at work harder by joining us. Yeah, <laughs> talk yeah. About Harry Truman. <laughs> That's what you call putting your life on the line for the podcast. <laughs> okay, well, that was awesome uh, talking about the episodes, the bangers of episodes that we did. And if you haven't listened to all the episodes, go back and listen to them. I think that you will enjoy them. Uh, maybe make a playlist of them on Spotify or something and hit the re- play random button. Maybe, maybe yeah. there's something, yeah. maybe there's something to be gained from that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mix it up. Fuck it. I don't know. <laughs> do whatever. And <laughs> do it, do what you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. So, Let's get it. Let's take some questions from the freaks. Uh, our first question: Why was America able to outlast the Spanish flu, but not COVID? Ooh, seems like this person seems to think America is going to collapse. Not out. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, I guess maybe uh, just to give some quick background, I went ahead and looked up all the uh, death estimates for the Spanish flu, etc. Right. So, just to to refresh people. The Spanish flu, you know, lasted from 1918 to 1919. The pandemic lasted about a year, almost on the nose. Uh, the estimate of total deaths internationally is somewhere between 17 million on the lowest possible estimate to 100 million at the highest possible estimate. Good Lord. Are you so, serious? Yeah. For the Spanish flu? Like, yeah. And, okay. And that's like nominal numbers. So, you know, the proportion of population is even, that's even crazier. The belief is it might have killed one to two percent of the Earth's population. <laughs> oh my is, God! Which is uh, not good. <laughs> let me let me check the numbers. Yes, not good. And that was just in uh, a year. Yeah, and let me tell you that seventeen million is wrong. Like that—that's the lowest uh, sort of barrier, and that it's definitely higher than that. Um, yeah, that's like a denialist number, basically. Yeah, yeah, and the reason why we know it's. Uh, higher than that is uh for some stats i'm about to you know quote here so in the u.s the estimated death toll is somewhere between five hundred thousand and eight hundred thousand. um india actually fared the worst during the flu and its death tolls estimated somewhere between 12 and 17 million on its own so crap um yeah and Part of the reason for that is that India, of course, you know, occupied by the British at the time, um, was already faring very badly as far as public health. Uh, There have been a series of very severe famines coming into the 20th century that had killed tens of millions of people. And as we get up to 1918, uh, the conditions have not improved a ton uh, for a lot of people in India. So the spread of this highly contagious virus throughout the population india also had a very large population for the time as it does now 
uh, was the virus was able to spread very quickly. And uh, of course, the British didn't give a shit that people were dying because that's been their position in India, you know, since they took over. And it really was a uh, horrifying event. I think the estimates were something like three to five percent of the Indian population died <laughs> of Spanish flu. So that's yeah. mind blowing. Yeah, which is why uh, I think people are a little skeptical of that 17 million total uh, world death yeah, number. Right. Is that India when the, might when have the surpassed India's that on its high. own? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, for comparison, right, uh, COVID has been going on for about two years now. Um, and Spanish flu, by the way, had three peaks, although it really only had one huge wave, uh, at least in the US. Uh, uh, whereas COVID has been going on for two years and has had in the U.S. at least, what, five or six big yeah. waves at this point. Yeah. Um, deaths internationally are estimated somewhere in the six million on the low end to 22 million range. Uh, U.S. officially has 947,000 dead uh, from COVID. Desperately trying to keep that official number under a million at all yeah. costs. I, I don't know anybody in public health who doesn't, think that the actual death toll is well over a million though like i I think everybody kind of assumes that's a bit of an undercount just for reasons of like we have no infrastructure to actually keep count of anything yeah yeah and like um, you know like covid can trigger other health issues which then lead to certain death like you know there's kind of a technical there's a technical element to that too yeah and you know, a note about this is that the death rate in the U.S. from COVID has been worse, of course, amongst marginalized populations. Uh, black people and Native American populations in particular have been the hardest hit by COVID. And Munya, wouldn't you know it? You want to guess who was hardest hit by the Spanish flu in America? Um, <laughs> it, it, was it was it white suburban homeowners? <laughs> <laughs> oh, as much as you might believe that were the case, as much as you might want to believe that were the case, uh, alas, it was not. And uh, oh, shock! There's actually been a lot written. It's it's interesting, and I'd like to maybe look through it a little more about how Spanish flu actually like wiped out whole tribes and stuff on various reservations. Um, it really was like a, a, another apocalyptic disease event brought to uh, native people uh, via, the United, via the United States, via, via, yeah, via right. white America. Right. Um, and COVID has been very similar. My father-in-law does uh, contact tracing in Eastern Washington and part of his area is he uh, goes to some of the reservations nearby where he lives and does contact tracing there. And uh, the stories of it spread on those reservations has been pretty horrifying. Um, it's, you know, and for all the same reasons why it was, you know, the space was so bad in India, which is that, you know, reservations continue to be the poorest places in America by a significant margin. And, you know, because of that, public health outcomes are very bad. You know, and so a thing like a very contagious disease like COVID uh, is really going to wreak havoc in places like that. And uh, it's it's uh, it's brutal. Um, So on that cheery note, uh, it gets to the question, of, I guess, of what are some differences here between (laughs) uh, Spanish flu and COVID? Uh, I mean, we're we're pretty sure COVID probably didn't start in the U.S., whereas we're pretty sure Spanish flu did. (laughs) 
Yeah. That's one difference. Um, wait, wait, why is it called the Spanish flu then? If it started so, in the US? Yeah, so basically uh it broke out at the tail end of World War One. And because of the war effort, uh most of the countries involved in the war were not paying either not paying a ton of attention to the fact that a lot of people were dying all of a sudden <laughs> from some sort of flu, or were not super interested in publicizing that fact. Uh, Spain, though, was not a party in World War One, and so they were the first to do mass reporting about the outbreak of the flu. Uh, so it then became forever known as Spanish flu. Why, do, why, why is it always the countries that actually like, find the virus? You yeah. know, the ones that are like punished for it in branding. Yeah, and I mean, certainly we would not be the first to point out the connection between calling it the Spanish flu and, you know, people in the U.S. referring to COVID as the China virus. Yeah. Um, where it's, you know, I think still up in the air as to whether or not it actually began in China. But we do know that China was the only place that had the health infrastructure to actually discover it. You know, yeah. um, and I think there's plenty of evidence that it was in the U.S. probably about the same time that it was in China when they were doing research. But the U.S. public health infrastructure just doesn't exist to discover these kind of things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was never going to be found here, basically. Yeah, I got a push notification um, from The New York Times the other day, and uh, they were like the, the, the opening, you know, it was kind of like the anticipation, like, uh, because they were like uh, breaking news. Uh, we found that. COVID was actually not uh, originally found in a Wuhan lab. And I was like, oh, are they going to say it? Mm-hmm. And they're like, it was actually found in a meat market in Wuhan yeah, yeah. instead. I'm like, oh, okay, well. Yeah, the right, back dude. to the meat market story. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I mean, you look, China is a densely populated country, uh, you know, the, so it's not impossible that a highly contagious disease could begin in China. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as I could tell from that New York Times story, uh, the the only thing that really came out of the study was that the they've kind of put the final nail in the lab leak theory, which was never uh, honestly a particularly um, was never serious. Yeah, it was never yeah. Like a particularly serious <laughs> theory. I think it was something that the U.S. Uh, certain elements within like the U.S. and Britain were willing to promote because it was politically convenient and ex- you know in their mind excuse uh, the horrifying uh, uh, just in you know lack of action regarding covid <laughs> mm-hmm. uh allowing so many people to die um but but yeah i think the final nail is finally coming to the coffin of the, of the lab leak theory uh honestly i i think it'll be decades before we probably know or at least have an idea of where it started um but right yeah right but yeah hey Keep the example of the Spanish flu in mind. Um, yeah, we, we should we should cut in um, the clip from Borat when he was at that Olympia rally and he was a uh, he was oh. uh, playing the character Country Steve, where he was like, uh, <laughs> "I ain't buying it, ain't no jokes. Corona is a liberal hoax. Corona is a liberal hoax. Obama, what we gotta do? Inject him with." The Wuhan flu. Ah, simpler times. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think as far as like why was the the 
why did the Spanish flu not kill as many Americans, I guess, as COVID is uh, the Spanish flu. It didn't last as long uh, for whatever reason. You'd have to ask somebody who like knows about fucking biology and stuff, but uh, it didn't remain the sort of the deadly, uh, you know, virulence or whatever that it initially began as it evolved to be more mild. Um, although there was some reemergences of Spanish flu in the thirties, by the way, but it was, it'd been much milder by that point, which does lead to this question. I mean, you know, people talk about like, oh, COVID's evolving. So it's going to become more mild. And there's actually no like reason to believe that. I mean, the Why would you believe that? Isn't isn't the whole point of like mutations, the fact that like they are resistant to stuff more like doesn't like my intuition, my dumbass, dumbass intuition that I have. Right. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, I have no nothing about like public health or, you know, epidemiology or whatever. But it's just like if a virus like evolves I wouldn't think that it would evolve into a weak, like evolve implies like, you know, I guess strength to me. Right. Like, I don't know. Well, it just doesn't, nothing evolves in like a linear way set out by the political goals of the United States. Right. Like, and the thing is, is that flus are, you know, the flu is a constantly mutating virus and it's sometimes more mild and sometimes worse. And the Spanish flu was a, situation which is the thing that i think a lot of public health officials were always afraid of which is what if just out of nowhere something becomes you know a disease that's endemic that's very contagious all of a sudden becomes hyper deadly because of some minor mutation in it and that's ends up happening with the spanish flu like the flu existed before the spanish flu so it clearly can evolve to more terrifying yeah yeah proportions right as well as the fact that i mean the funny thing about believing that about covid is like the uh, Delta variant, which was much more deadly than the original COVID variant, uh, was an evolution of the original variant. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. So, <laughs> so it doesn't just go one direction, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's you know. So I, I, so part of it was just the short span of the Spanish flu. The other part is the U.S. was much less dense and urban than it is today uh, in 1918. So a yeah, respiratory illness really thrives in like dense populations and the u.s it was getting there but was not a fully urbanized society at that point um the other thing is at the time people were much more used to dealing with epidemic and pandemic disease uh public health was just coming into existence at the time and we were dealing with a lot of things like i mean this is the first big campaigns against tuberculosis this was the Mm. first big campaigns against things like malaria and stuff like that and uh so people were just a little more used to the concept of uh collective action against disease Mm. and uh you know probably because of the war there was just like a touch more social solidarity as well um in short it was not quite the failed state that the u.s is today yeah right yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that 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 makes sense. You know, in the U.S. <laughs> there were some like strings of like social bonds still a yeah. hundred years ago. Well, like everything, there was um, there's like political structural reasons why you know it maybe didn't last as long, or why the U.S. was able to affect you know some sort of you know mountain effective response. But then there's also the contingency of the virus itself, right? And, you know, its own mutation pattern, which is unpredictable inherently, right? And Well, you know, also, what happened in 1917? You think about that. Oh, damn. 
you know, I had not <laughs> thought about that. So yeah, uh, Russia Revolution. Maybe it's the it's the linen flu, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody ever think about that? Anybody ever yeah. put those pieces puzzle Consider pieces that together? One. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, um, let's go back to our freaks here. Uh, we had a freak on Discord. Uh, this was a while back, so I, I unfortunately couldn't find the exact way they worded this. But basically asked us about the business plot. So, Munya, are you familiar with Marine Corps General Schmedley Butler and the 1934 uh, business plot? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so the business <laughs> plot is a thing that's like very popular in some circles. Uh, but and we could talk a little bit about that here in a second. But the long and the short of it is in 1934, Schmedley Butler, who is a figure that has been a part of like the American war machine, essentially since the Spanish American war, like he's, he's a major character in American Imperial <laughs> expansion. We'll say, uh, came out and in front of a Senate hearing basically said that he, he had been recruited to lead a coup with the, uh, American Legion, and backed by financial interests against the Roosevelt administration. And the idea was they were going to raise an army of 500,000 people. They were going to march on D.C. And uh, Schmedley Butler was going to lead this and then become the, uh, you know, maybe temporary or whatever leader of a military junta in Washington. Uh, and he just announced this? Like, well, he outright? was uh, whistleblowing, basically. Oh, was, okay. He was like, this is stage one. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. You cannot arrest me. That's part of the yeah. plan. <laughs> I'm the cake boss. You can't arrest me. Uh, they actually, they did arrest him and they had him in a jail there. And he just started laughing uncontrollably in the jail. And all the guards <laughs> got nervous. So, yeah, but, but yeah. They're like, wow, <laughs> this guy is truly twisted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, this is kind of an interesting one because they launched an investigation into this. But uh, let's just say they didn't investigate very hard. Um, <laughs> the only other name is this guy. I believe his name is Gerald McGuire. Uh, that comes up who is the guy who reportedly recruited uh, uh, Schmedley Butler. And he's just like this weird character you get in America sometimes <laughs> who he was connected to wall street because he was a bonds salesman, although he claimed mm -hmm. to have like deeper connections and connected to the American Legion, probably because he was a member or something. But he is <laughs> the one who pitched this. And the question has always been to what degree was this plot real versus, uh, you know, uh, just made up fantasy by this McGuire guy who roped this, you know, old, not even old at this point, but this Marine Corps general into it. And then the Marine Corps general like ratted him out, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now the plot thickens here in the sense that McGuire dies very shortly after this is revealed Ooh. despite being like 30 years old or whatever. Uh, but just then he also randomly. Uh, he was being treated at an American hospital in 1935. <laughs> oh, no. So some, some causes no of death are not hard to, <laughs> hard to figure out. But yeah, he was being treated for an illness and, and uh, died and from complications oops. from being bye at the bye. hospital. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's sort of a... Uh, it's one of those sort of interesting stories. And, and I think there's probably enough there to say that there probably were some business interests that were like 
fine banding around the idea of maybe a coup to overthrow Roosevelt. We did talk in our episode about uh, the Depression that the U.S. ruling class was very obsessed with one Mr. Benito Mussolini. Yeah. And, you know, an officer's coup, I don't think is to say out of the question for the time period. Uh but I, I don't know that this is like ever a, a fundamentally serious plot, uh, you know, as, as some like to uh, discuss. And we'll post there's actually a really good article in Rolling Stone about this that we'll post in the links if people are interested in reading about it. Um, but I, I think that and actually here, let me read this this section from this article. That's, that's yeah, I yeah. think kind of interesting here. So uh, they ask, whoop, jeez. So they say, going over the evidence, you know, again, all of that is circumstantial evidence. None of it points definitively to a plan to overthrow the U.S. government. But it was enough to warrant further investigation. So why did no one look deeper at the time? Why was the idea that a president could be overthrown by a conspiracy of well-connected businessmen and a few armed divisions led by a rabble-rousing general considered so ridiculous that the mere suggestion was met with peals of laughter across America? It was because for decades, Americans have been trained to react in just that way by excusing, covering up or simply laughing away all evidence that showed how many of those same people have been behind similar schemes all over the world. Butler had led troops on the banker's behalf to overthrow presidents in Nicaragua and Honduras and gone on a spy run to investigate regime change on behalf of the oil companies in Mexico. He had risked his Marines' lives for Standard Oil in China and worked with Murphy's customs agents in an invasion that helped lead to a far-right dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. In Haiti, Butler had done what even the, this is French, sorry, Qua de Fue and its French fascist allies could not, uh, shut down a national assembly at gunpoint. So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> It, I think that's maybe the best explanation why they probably didn't actually look further into the business plot, which is that like nobody was interested in uncovering any of these cans of worms. Right? Yeah. Um, right. But at the same time, I think it's like, it wasn't necessarily like a super serious thing. I think it does show the extent to which uh, American business was toying with the idea of a European style fascist uh, regime though. And I think the popularity of the business plot is mainly been the result of uh, the communist party at the time uh, getting wind of this made a lot of hay about the business. plot. Uh, we're, yeah. we're, we're very excited about the business, plot, which I mean, for obvious propagandistic reasons, I of mean, course, you yeah. know, uh, and it was very convenient for the popular front and things like that. Uh, but I, I think it's kind of lived on, uh, you know, because of that, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I remember, remember, like, during, I mean, remember that, like, Fire Festival was supposed to be the biggest festival, like, in the, on Earth, right? Like, <laughs> you know, the, the weird people emerged to make really wild claims. Like, Jacob Wool, um, didn't, didn't he, like, uh, try to, like, who was the lead guy, like, leading the, um, like, Trump investigations? 
Oh, uh, Mueller, Robert Mueller. Mueller, yeah. yeah. Jacob Wool, like, you know, basically, like, falsely accused Robert Mueller of, like, of sexual assault or something. And he was like, I have all the evidence yeah. right here. And, like, and, like, he, like, did a press conference where he basically said nothing. Uh, like, immediately got canned. I mean, like, people will make wild-ass claims, um, uh, especially weirdos and grifters and freaks, right? You know, like. yeah. Yeah, you can't just like, you know, take everything people claim is like serious. Well, history is full of weird eccentrics. And the thing is, is that, uh, you know, conversations of this type of like, oh, I wonder if we could do just an officer's coup like in Mussolini, like in Italy against Roosevelt. I'm sure that a lot of like high powered American businesses were having these kind of conversations. I just don't know that they ever escalated to the point of a plan. Right. I I think they ultimately just did what they always did, which was just weaseled their way into the sort of bureaucracy and, you know, turned, you know, essentially what we've kind of already started talking about and are going to talk about further, turn the New Deal on its head. Right. And turned it into a massive giveaway to corporate America uh, at the expense of the working class. Um, But yeah. So I think that kind of basically sums up the business plan. But like I said, uh, there's a long form article by this uh, journalist who wrote a book about it, right? Uh, in Rolling Stone, that's worth reading. And we'll put a link there for those that are interested. Uh, Going to go ahead and put my you know nickel down on this definitely appears in that Oliver Stone documentary series, right? It's got to be. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 Oliver right. Stone loves the business plot. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know this factually. I just know it in my heart which is more important than facts. Yeah. Yeah. As always, heart always trumps, trumps facts. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, Brian, let's dip back into the mailbag. Uh, Here is a good question in three parts. Is drunk driving good or bad? All right. Part one. Okay, part two. Which ending the myth character that we have been introduced to so far will be most likely to do it? (laughs) And the last part. And who would be the best drunk driver? Well, you know, we kind of joked a little bit about this off mic in that uh, when I read this initially, I immediately knew what the answer was. And it was so disheartened to realize we haven't quite gotten to him yet. But I feel like I got to say it anyways. Lyndon Baines Johnson is America's best drunk driver. At least this Wait, Brian, Brian, we need to answer the first part of the question. Drunk driving. Good or bad? Good or bad. You know, uh, (laughs) not to ruin the fun. I actually do think that the laws and punitive nature of drunk driving law is bad actually and that drunk driving is a social problem and not a criminal justice problem and could be resolved via things like uh affordable to free public transit that runs 24 7 as opposed to stops at midnight uh it could be changed by things like changing how you do bar closing times like there's a lot of evidence that allowing bars to stay open to whenever they want actually reduces drunk driving and things like that. Mm. There's, there's a lot of social steps we could take to reduce drunk driving. And in very typical fashion, the U S has done none of them, but has pursued a entirely punitive approach that, you know, shock of all shocks makes a lot of money for a lot of people. Like there's whole mechanic shops. His entire business is installing blow and goes, which are jankety bullshit 
fucking bits of technology that break all the fucking time, but you have to maintain in your car uh, if you have a DUI. Um, their you know, insurance companies have to they have to sell you special insurance at extremely uh-huh. high rates. You know, uh, there's there's a lot of money in keeping these sort of you know punitive uh, you know uh, system around drunk driving up and going and the reason for that is that uh it's a very unsympathetic crime given how we frame everything in america uh that nobody's going to stand up and defend the drunk driver or whatever so you can do whatever you want to him and it's a microcosm of the american criminal justice system generally so is drunk driving good or bad uh good sure yeah it's good people should I, I, i agree with that Fight against the law. Do it more. Yep. <laughs> but seriously, truck driving laws are stupid. Come on, guys. Like, come on. Some some things are Kill easy. Kill the cop in your head. Yeah, the criminal justice system sucks. Come on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, which who would be the best though? Lyndon Baines Johnson has never driven Easily. sober. Yeah, yeah, never drove sober in his life, and was famous for apparently loading up reporters in his Cadillac on, at Johnson Ranch in Johnson City, Texas, and just going off-road it is now keep in mind this is like a, a 1960 you know whatever cadillac right like a nice nice yeah. cadillac but also has like the suspension like zero suspension on it right yeah so this is yeah. off-roading through like a texas you know, ranch That's just smashing shit. into fucking hills and bushes and shit hammered out of his fucking mind while, while like accidentally saying the n-word yeah yeah, yeah i was screaming the n-word <laughs> at the top of his lungs with a car Full of reporters, and again, yeah. I mean, because it's like 1965 or whatever. There's no seatbelts or anything yeah. like that. Every surface of that Cadillac is like a razor sharp blade of steel. You know? <laughs> like, so, absolute king drunk driver, uh, LBJ. Yeah. But God he's not tier. in our time period. He's not in our time no, period. So no, we're, no. you know, we're we're like uh, we're like kids our age who want to talk about Michael Jordan, but they're like, no, pre eighty five uh, best basketball player. Like, right, no. right. <laughs> No, no, we can't do that. You can't say that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, do you have an idea? Maybe who would be? Let's yeah, we'll start with that last one. Who do you think would be the best drunk driver? Okay, the best drunk driver. Um, whew. so we're also kind of going back and forth on this one. And so, like, the thing about Teddy Roosevelt is he's an eccentric guy, and we're I'm kind of like making the equivalents of like eccentricities with like drunk driving you know like there's there's but i I think there's like you know some truth to that but i I, the energy of teddy roosevelt seems more of like um seems less of like the bombastic drunk driver energy and more of like the the tinker the tinker nerd shit you know and like i just don't think that um tinker nerd is gonna be uh that extroverted to believe that he can like uh drunk better when he drives you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i just i just don't really see that but harding on the other hand mm-hmm. i think you can make a good case for that right brian yeah I, harding is definitely the biggest drunk of the time period we're looking at um and so would definitely one would have never driven a day sober uh, yeah, we do kind of run into the issue, too, of we're at the very beginning of automobiles. So it's kind of hard to say whether Hardy never drove a car or not, even I'm sure he did. But if he did, he definitely did it drunk. And yeah, uh, yeah. and I'm going to go ahead and say uh, he did it well. Um, 
Yeah, I like to interpret the question when the uh, question asker said who would be the best drunk driver. It's like, you know, oh, we yeah, could yeah. be, you know, we could, that's like, you know, I don't know, Christopher Columbus could be, you know, you could be, you know, like, yeah, it, it's more about the energy than like the actual if they drove or not, you know. Yeah, and I, I think the energy of Harding is that if he grew up in an age of cars where from childhood he had access to vehicles, uh, I think he'd be an excellent truck driver because uh, the man was not sober a lot. Uh, the problem is, too, we have a lot of teetotalers in this time period or people who were like the closest to teetotalers you got at the time, which was they drank like casually, but not all the time. So, you know, unfortunately, alcoholism which, wasn't big uh, back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Woodrow Wilson, loser, didn't do it. Uh, Calvin yeah. Coolidge, I think, loser, wasn't wasn't partying. Truman, um, Truman. I genuinely don't think Truman has a sip of alcohol. I just like he just doesn't give me that energy of he has like, extreme dry energy. That's for yeah, sure. Like he, he has if dry he drank, energy. he wasn't getting drunk. That's for sure. Yeah, um, right. Which is kind of like that's Woodrow Wilson too. Like. I'm sure like all people at the time period he drank, but probably wasn't getting like rip roaring drunk. Kind of the same with Teddy Roosevelt. Like I feel like Teddy mm-hmm. Roosevelt had a little bit of a dry energy as well. Yeah. Um, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt would probably like have like a, like a half glass of wine and like would make like sound with his yeah. lips, you know? Or he'd pour some like extremely expensive bottle, like a glass of whiskey, and it would like, be, like sip it for seventeen whiskey. hours. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And he'll be like talking about the notes of the whiskey and like how, where yeah. it was sourced from and everything, and all of, like the insider baseball uh, yeah. shit. You know, that, yeah. that that's that's the that's the Teddy Roosevelt. Now, as far as this, the second question, which is uh, who would be most likely to do it? That's literally everybody we've talked about because. Yeah. Uh, I am pretty sure that like most vehicles came with alcohol dispensers up until like 1980. <laughs> so literally everybody we talked about so far to the extent that they would get drunk means that they were definitely drive drunk for sure. Yeah. Like that was yeah, drunk driving and like what we deem as like uh different from regular driving is a very new concept. It's not something that was really uh differentiated. <laughs> so I'll tell you a fun story. I mean, yeah, when I was a little kid in the 1980s, in texas you could drive with open containers still meaning the driver could just have an open beer like (laughs) which my dad was very fond of and i remember when texas went from yes we still have open containers but the driver can't have one and this was a very big deal for my dad and so he basically would always make this huge show of putting his beer in the uh, like you know how you'd have like the two cup holders. Yeah, you make a yeah. big show of putting his beer in the passenger cup holder, right? And then making this big show of like I gotta reach all the way over here three inches to the right to get my beer now as to I get drive around. As I drive around with my like six year old son in the car. <laughs> that's the best. That's what the best time. sovereign citizen thing to be like. <laughs> no, sir. I am technically not drinking beer. It's actually my six-year-old son who's <laughs> <laughs> who is a passenger, so it's legal. <laughs> yep, <laughs> exactly. You know, so I mean, incredible stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean the uh, the moral panic around drunk driving really is like it comes into being in the '80s and like really hits its height in the '90s, and now it's just been kind of accepted. It's just another like look, uh, even though it doesn't work at all, and like. It's, it, people still drive drunk all the time. 
uh, we still have to have this hyper punitive state because of yeah. because because these people have to be punished. You know, yeah, that, right. that's that's how you build a better world is just through insane punishment. <laughs> of, you know, but yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, they, they, they'll all be drunk drivers. All right. Well, <laughs> here we go. We got we got a nice simple one here. Um, all right. Yeah, it's real short. Any thoughts on Huey Long? Uh, now, Huey Long was governor of Louisiana from 1928 to 1932. Then he served as a senator for the state from 32 until his assassination in 1935. Uh, Long opposed the New Deal as insufficiently radical and planned to run for president in 1936. And is actually assassinated, I think, like the day after he announces his run for president. So, Holy shit. So I didn't uh, know that he was assassinated like a day out. That's crazy. Yeah, maybe it's the same week or so. it's like immediately afterwards. Uh, although I, I so don't you think, think it's the government connected. took him down. Is there no, like <laughs> so Huey Long hilariously gets killed because of the patronage system. So there was like a judge in Louisiana that he like forced out. Like Huey Long is also a like political boss in Louisiana, right? And he had a judge that he felt like wasn't towing the line enough or just wanted to put somebody else's place. And he forced that judge out of his district. Now, these are supposed to be like, they're not lifetime appointments, but it's kind of like supposed to be a lifetime job. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Sitting around. I mean, this is like it's the a big mafia. deal to like force someone out. Right? Yeah, like if you ever see Sopranos and you hear them talk about the jobs on the construction sites, like this is yeah, kind of yeah. what we're talking about. And, yeah, yeah. And in doing this, of course, this uh, caused a big row. And so actually the son of that judge is the one who killed him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Just went up and shot him. Fucking, like, Dude, like, wow. It's like in the mayor's... or. It's in one of the official buildings too. Maybe it's in like the the state legislature or something. But uh, just literally just walks up the steps and fucking blasts them. Just blasts him. Uh, yeah. crazy time. He was the, he was named like the Kingfish or something, right? Yeah, yeah. His nickname was the Kingfish, which I think was supposed to be some sort of reference to his like role as a political boss um, in Louisiana. Yeah. And Huey Long. I mean, there's a lot of characters like this uh, in the time period of you know populist leaders who are. Basically, they're looking at the Great Depression and saying, well, clearly people are mad about capitalism. Clearly something about capitalism doesn't work. But we're offering solutions uh, instead of socialism, right? So like Huey Long and this whole thing, he created this stuff called share our wealth uh, organizations, right? So he basically was like, we should redistribute uh, the income in America, redistribute the wealth. And so he created all these clubs called share wealth clubs, which was supposed to be like the basis of his presidential campaign. And like the whole reason behind that was like, we have to do this or else we'll have socialism. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't like, let's yeah, move right. towards socialism. Um, no, so, I mean, it was like a, it's just like social Democrat type. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there was some pressure. Uh, I, th- I think Long and people like him, like Robert LaFollette in Wisconsin, it's like another guy like this. But I think it was guys like this too are part of the pressure that's being put on Roosevelt to do more radical things with the New Deal. Um, and again, I, 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 you know, I think the emphasis has to be on they're doing this in like to stave off socialism and say reminds me of kind of like the midwest congress people who like endorsed bernie but who were like basically like just pretty like establishment democrats who like kind of stumped for bernie you know i was like let's do them talk or you know i don't want to say say the midwest particularly but just like establishment democrats in general like you know even people like rokana and like you know like mark pocan and stuff you know it's Mm -hmm. like 
these people who are like pretty solidly like just you know within uh democrat party uh yeah. you know but 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 because of the pressure of essentially knowing one that their seat might be up but two that it might be advantageous to have a little mm-hmm. maybe making healthcare a little less like crazy and like kind of just like staving off that pressure release for like something bigger to happen it's kind of yeah. like how i saw that yeah i mean to a lesser degree i mean this is like the trajectory of a certain like yeah wing of the democratic party post like 2000 you know 12 ish right which is this idea of like look things have gone so bad since 2008 uh we're gonna have to do something and you'd even hear them say i think elizabeth warren even said this in one of the debates which is like you know we have to regulate the banks to save capitalism right yeah exactly exactly and, and this is very much the same energy and you know i mean had it been Huey Long instead of Roosevelt or whatever in the White House, I, I think you get sort of similar results in the sense that uh, because the actual foundations and structural elements of capitalism aren't being challenged in any way, it it's able to come roaring back and dispense with these reforms once they're no longer needed to convince to get people to buy in. Right. I mean, yeah. that's what the yeah. New Deal is. It's getting people to buy in back into the system. Right. And. Huey Long's kind of doing the same thing. Now, one of the great debates about Huey Long is to what extent was he a racist, which he was, but to what extent was he a racist just trying to maintain the Southern Jim Crow order? And that, I think, is like a little more complicated and would probably take somebody who knows a lot more about like Louisiana politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, he certainly was racist. He certainly was maintaining the Jim Crow order. <laughs> like that that's not the complicated part Wait, of it. You're saying people who, uh, you know, advocate for like more social welfare can still be racist. Yeah. And I mean, you know, ultimately, again, I mean, Roosevelt basically bent the New Deal to the Southern Democrats. So, I mean, you know, it's hard to imagine you know, any difference, right, with like a Huey Long there. I, I, I do chafe a little bit at the idea that this whole thing was just a plot to maintain Jim Crow. Uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Like it, it is yeah. a response to like populist forces and stuff like that. It's just that. As a Southern politician, Jim Crow is a given fact in your life. It's like gravity, right? right? Like you're right. just not opposing it or, or moving past it or anything like that, which is the other reason why I think that this wasn't an elaborate scheme to keep Jim Crow. I think for Huey Long, Jim Crow was as solid as the earth itself. Like it, it yeah, wasn't going right. anywhere, you know? So all he had to no, care about to was save these something other that's eternal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think he would have imagined that Jim Crow would have lasted forever. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I and I and historians sort of go back and forth on this on this topic of, you know, how hard you want to go in on Huey Long. I, I think the ultimate issue is that he's just sort of this character uh that there was a lot of in the time period. And uh because he got got, there's not really a ton that you need to know about him. Other than, hey, if you become an important like political machine leader in a state, uh pay attention to those appointments, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh did you ever see the movie carlito's way no no this is a pretty old movie so it's uh al pacino he just gets out of prison he's like a gangster in new york hilariously a latino gangster because i mean (laughs) why not right yeah and and he goes back to the uh to i think he's in brooklyn or the bronx or something and he's just trying to 
play it straight or whatever. He opens a club, but like all his you know ghosts from the past keep coming back. But there's this kid who keeps coming up to him and keeps introducing himself, trying to like get in with him. He's like, you know, it's me, Benny Blanco from the Bronx. And the entire time, Carly is just dismissing him because he feels like he's got bigger problems, right? And you know, he's yeah. all the, his cokehead lawyer is like all this shit. <laughs> and in the end of the movie, he finally thinks he's escaped all his big problems and he's about to get on the train to escape new york and old benny is sitting there and he shoots him for not respecting oh him. oh my you know? god <laughs> <laughs> and that's very much what happens to huey long is you yeah know, of all yeah. the things he probably thought could happen to him i don't think that the son of some dipshit judge was what he was expecting <laughs> but the world's funny like that. <laughs> yeah, the world is really funny. <laughs> and there is a movie about, I can't remember what it's called, but there is a movie that people like about Huey Long. I don't know. People can mm. find that on their own. Go to IMDb, type in Huey Long. Uh, it's from the 60s, I think, but yeah. Got it. Cool. All right, well, yeah, okay, let's just uh, keep it in this time period. We're on a roll with uh, this time period. So uh, one of our freaks writes... I was intrigued by the idea that the way the U.S. entered World War II was more about empire than winning the war. I'd like to hear more discussion of this. Oh, just record a whole other episode. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, this is literally, yeah, we could, we could go on. So we got to really kind of, uh, you know, pace ourselves or at least be, uh, you know, concise because there is a lot to say about this but i think it is one of like the key key aspects to uh world war ii and i think one of the things that i think wishes in the general narrative and general historians get wrong in framing uh when we just see it as like responding to nazism versus an opportunity to um you know expand empire i think you know going back to Lenin's imperialism, I think, is a really key way to view it. I mean, World War One and World War Two ultimately were results of not just, and, and I think, like you know, I think combining imperialism with the fascism and social revolution um, is really key to understanding different social and economic forces that lead to war and why war happens. But I mean, Lenin essentially says is that uh, the contradictions of capitalism intensify to the point where you need to basically reshuffle the deck, so to speak, mm-hmm. with the imperial powers, right? So remember that Germany, Nazi Germany was an imperial power. Weimar yeah. Germany was an imperial power, right? Like they they are one of the key players in like global empire um, who are competing with other imperial powers. So it's not, I think we really focus on the um, obvious, uh, you know, racialized, um, nazi thought when it and like thinking that that was just like the only driver for world war was just like you know dominating to like make the white aryan race right but like the other half of that is that there is actual interests of empire too where capitalism formed a crisis to the point where they in order to expand you needed new markets there was no real new markets to expand to um you know like colonial excesses were kind of tapped out as well and so when that happens, you need to go to war to basically like either reshuffle power or reshuffle territory that could come in the form of soft or hard power at the end of it. It come from the reparations of the war or just like renegotiating like different terms in global trade. Um, and that's what happened in World War One. It happened that Germany kind of started both of those <laughs> wars. Right. But I mean, every every other um Empire, whether it was the United States, Britain, um, Japan, 
France, you know, they were all kind of looking, everyone's kind of like nervously looking at who was going to go. And it just so happens that Germany was the one that went. But make no mistake, all of them were very thirsty for this to happen because if that if war war is the inevitable conclusion, like when it comes to, you know, modern capitalism, right? And so mm-hmm. when G- Germany just happened to be a lot more aggro, if you want to put it in like civilization terms, right? Like they're an aggro AI, but everyone else kind of, you know, wanted to join them because there is opportunity to get an upper hand outside of the war. So the U.S. entering the war... um, is something that they would obviously do from that standpoint of like, you know, uh, Lenin explaining why actual wars happen, especially world wars happen. Um, the way that the U S entered it was the most advantageous for empire expansion because none of the wars happened on their territory, yeah. which is very key. <laughs> <Always> <laughs> so you could actually just sit back and watch everyone else bomb the shit out of each other in Europe and just kind of, you know, have a lot of people get destroyed while you kind of watch now america had to join world war ii um soon enough where they'd actually have claim what if they do win right like you can't like show up at like the very final second and like people actually honor your demands right because that's i mean that's just like uh you can't hack your way to do that right so you had to enter the war late but not too late um, to the point where, you know, they could actually uh, then maybe like shake up the deck. Uh, and, you know, the real remember, like the U.S. and Nazism is not uh, an antithesis of each other. They, um, they basically <laughs> created Nazism, if anything. Right. And so I think the narrative of like the U.S. going to war for a moral cause is completely bogus. I mean, just get that out of your mind. It's just not yeah. that's not based in reality that's like that's pr that's marketing yeah, there's the story you tell the rubes to get them to die in your war and then there's the reason why you actually fight it yeah which yeah. are rarely the same thing um yeah i mean to your point the, you know the biggest problem with empire and imperialism is the world is only so big right mm-hmm. and you end up in this sort of zero-sum stalemate and you know yeah as Lenin astutely points out you know political groupings right countries will use economic powers to change the force of that change the shape of that stalemate they'll use political powers to change the face of that stalemate and then they'll use war powers right to change the face of the stalemate and that ultimately is what's happening in world war ii now interestingly you know the build-up to world war ii and i'm not saying that this is a comparison to anything that's happened or anything like that but uh (laughs) the build-up to world war ii is the united states is continually sort of and the west generally is continually appeasing germany right is continually aiding germany so from 1934 on the soviet union tries to form an anti-fascist alliance the u.s not only refuses to join but actively actively intervenes to break up conferences like there's a conference in 35 that the u.s like actively sabotages right things like that by saying stuff like they don't just say oh no we're not going to do this they would be like oh yeah yeah we definitely want to join your anti-fascist alliance but let's do the conference next year instead right (laughs) you know and stuff like that right um so play an active part in sort of defeating soviet efforts at building an anti-fascist alliance before the war could start uh at the same time they're helping Germany's war industry get back on its feet, right? They're encouraging 
uh, you know, constantly Hitler to look east, right? You know, by, you know, constantly editorializing and doing stuff like talking about how weak the Russian, you know, state is versus the French who are very ready for war, right? And really hmm. talking up their, you know, defenses <laughs> and things like that, which turned out to be worth nothing in the actual war, but, uh, you know, going on about this. But yeah, you know, everything is pushing Germany east, right? Like anytime Germany wants to expand to the east, the US and the English are there to help them do it diplomatically, right? right. And uh, but the thing is, is there's this little thing called contingency, which is Germany decides to go west first. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that fucks up some of the plans for those in Europe, although they're still trying to salvage it as best they can. And by the time the US enters the war in 42, I mean, I think all the points you've made, Budia, explain like what the situation, right, and what's happening. And then the actual thing that happens because of your explanation is they spend all their time dicking around in North Africa, essentially securing, you know, uh, oil lines, you know, and things like that. You know, like the, the, the Suez Canal is important. That has to be secured, right? North African trade routes have to be secured. All these things are very important for empire, uh, mm -hmm. Not necessarily super important for the war effort. Upon entering the war, Roosevelt agrees or, you know, agrees with Stalin to open a second front as quickly as possible because the Soviet Union is essentially doing all the fighting. Uh, like 80% of the German military is on the Eastern Front, right? So the Soviet Union's doing the war in Europe, right? right, uh, right. And so Stalin's pushing for the Americans and the British to open a second front in Europe as soon as possible to relieve the Soviet war effort, right? So they're not just doing all the work. And the U.S. just puts this off over and over and over again. Uh, when they finally finish dicking around North Africa, Stalin's very excited. He thinks that they're finally going to start the war in Europe. Uh, <laughs> instead, then they're like, no, nah, we're actually going to play around on Sicily for a little bit and then uh, maybe go to like southern Italy. Um, just doing like open war open world exploring exactly <laughs> like, <you know. laughs> exactly while your friend does all the actual fighting yeah. Yeah. and uh really the land invasion of europe doesn't show up until uh the soviets essentially have won the war like the yeah. back of the german military is broken after the battle of stalingrad uh there's another important tank battle right in there but uh curse yeah at, at curse but the back of the german military is completely broken from here on out the germans are losing the only question yep. is when and, you know, who's going to be in Berlin when it happens? And at that point, the U.S. and British all of a sudden get this real urge to get into Europe, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, incredible stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the U.S. sort of delayed as much as possible. Now, whose fault that is? I mean, you know, historians go back and forth on. I mean, that's the reality of what happened. Uh, I'll, I'll put a maybe I'll. I'll uh, excerpt it and put it in the show notes. Gabriel Kolko has like a nice passage about this where he blames the British for this. But, you know, if you're going to blame somebody, the British are always pretty uh, good to blame. But uh, essentially, the U.S. and British stall the entire time they're in Europe. Now, in Asia, the same thing's happening. The Chinese are fighting the bulk of the Japanese military. And the U.S. is dicking around doing this island hopping campaign. Um there's excuses the U.S. gives for that about, like, creating coal stations and stuff. Uh, I don't know that those excuses explain the sheer amount of time and effort the U.S. is putting into this. I will tell you this, though. Uh, one, of, one of the places where one of these battles takes place is a little island in the Pacific called Plow. 
just last year, there was a major story about China warning the U.S. about opening another military installation on Palau Mm. as part of their containment strategy of China. And the thing is, if you take that little tidbit and you start looking around the U.S.'s containment of China, you see a lot of little islands that you might wonder, like, why does the U.S. have control in this area? And then you just take a little look back in history and you'll find that, oh, that's right, because it was part of the island hopping strategy, you know, towards Japan. And weird that all these places are still in the U.S. sphere of influence, you know. Um, mm. Yeah, strange. Strange how that works, right? So mm-hmm. uh, that would uh, be the basis, I think, of our argument that the U.S. is more interested in empire than winning the war, per se. Uh that and all the stuff we previously mentioned about the U.S.'s infatuation with Mussolini in particular, but fascism generally. Um, but this brings us maybe to another related question uh, from mm-hmm. a loyal listener, which is, hi. Oh, hello. Oh, <laughs> hi. Hi there. My professor said that you are <laughs> my professor said that you are of shit and that you're bullshit. Thoughts and responses. <laughs> Rational criticism only. <laughs> Uh, yeah i mean i i can only assume this is the most serious of questions but uh Uh (laughs) but i do think that if you were to bring i mean some of the stuff we're talking about is let's just say touchy in the united states like the very matter of fact way of saying the u.s didn't really care that much about fascism during world war ii was mainly just building an empire and all that kind of stuff I think probably you would get some pushback, but I think that pushback is largely going to be optic, you know, optics stuff of like, you know, uh, yeah, like there's some points there, but like, it just doesn't feel good to say that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> could say that a little nicer. <laughs> yeah, like, but, but did you see Saving Private Ryan though? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, also, as we're going to cover in episodes coming up, uh, academia post 1950s was just completely flooded with like you know uh, national security money like nsa money cia money defense department money so you know what your professor's the bullshit how about that yeah. i like yeah. them apples uh ask them where they got funded who actually funds them the <laughs> ned <laughs> think about that uh it is worth mentioning uh I we mean, get funded by by people paying five dollars a month on patreon that's where yeah. our funding comes from i don't think that they could say the same yeah our funding is completely open everybody can see it uh funding, funding. secure exactly uh <laughs> and it is i mean obviously it's not what this person is joking about on here but uh the amount to which like the cia and the national security state is infiltrated colleges i think is little appreciated in this country yeah yeah oh definitely yeah particularly if you're doing anything studying a region or country that's considered essential to american empire either because it's an official enemy like say china or russia or it's a uh, area of uh let's say financial interests like the middle east yeah Um, middle eastern studies in u.s uh universities like i'm sure that there are some good programs i know someone who's in a good program right so i'm not trying to generalize here but I mean, you got to raise your eyebrows if you if a white person is taking Arabic to, uh, you know. Uh. <laughs> well, and I, and I think the thing, too, is that people don't 
maybe that's what I think about is all the money that goes into funding those programs and funding like the graduate students in them. Like it really is like national security money. Um, I had a professor uh, who was a political science uh, professor whose focus was modern Russia. And I remember him just very matter of factly telling me, he's like, well, yeah, I took a CIA grant to go to Russia and do my research. He's like, like the money was CIA money. He's like, but he's like, that's the only money to do it. Like, he's like, so you either, you either like take the, you know, CIA money or you don't do fucking Russian research, right? <laughs> like those are your choices. That and, that's like the avenue. The only avenue to do Russian research is to take CIA money. That's crazy. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the, the big part about that is that that has a disciplining effect on uh the humanities especially. And yeah. you know, uh so again, it's actually your professor who is of the bullshit. All right. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> and that's the T, sis. Chile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, there was actually a big uh, row that came up to recently about, oh, I'm totally forgetting his name. This well known anarchist anthropologist who somebody dug up in his like ancient uh, autobiography how he talked about going to Indonesia to do anthropology and basically realized that every like report he was writing was like literally to the cia <laughs> like, like all his reports about like student activity and stuff in indonesia was just being sent oh directly God. to the cia and he's like oh so i never really thought about like the money that i got it was all like literally just state department money and like all the research i was doing was so that they could carry out the genocide in like the 1960s they were like, just like <laughs> sending uh like interns like underpaid interns to yeah, the- <laughs> They used they use graduate students for that stuff. Yeah. And yeah, he was like, he was there in like 1960 or something like that. It was basically doing the legwork that allowed them to create the kill list and stuff like that. Yeah. In Holy shit, dude. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to, you know, impugn academia and learning as a whole, but like, that's a big part of what American academia is, is like, essentially imperial maintenance oh yeah no i mean well that's just like i think gets to the point of i think it's important to understand and analyze things in the u.s in the sense in the context of that you are living in an empire and that means that everything inside of that empire for the majority of the things that exist inside of that empire are organized around how that actually benefits the mm-hmm. empire right whether that's private industry whether that's um or you know and specific things like within private industry um you know real estate the the de- defense industry uh academia all of those things are in context of how that serves the empire yeah. right because that's like well that's what the project is like that's like that is almost like the the base and everything is built on top of that presumption, you know, yeah, like you're yeah. not going to have anything anti empire. That's like, that can actually fly if uh, people who are still running the empire are in charge, you know? And so, yeah, of course, like every, every like big U S institution is in the context of it serving um, that empire. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's actually not that complicated when viewed from that perspective. It's like, yeah, you know. It's it's why Marx's sort of point about base and superstructure is important, right? You know, you have this political economic base, right? And the institutions and stuff that get built are the superstructure around it that maintain it. And, yep. you know, it's important to understand that relationship. And this is not to say that, like, all your professors are, uh, 
James Bond style agents <laughs> of the CIA. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. A huge yeah. like when the CIA gives you money in academia, they're like they're not like, hey, I'm the CIA. Here's a check. Yeah, like, although sometimes a check and you sometimes and you need they are. To, like, so yeah. sometimes they are, but it's like you know, <laughs> yeah. usually it's like yeah. Um, Oh, it's the same thing. Like with it's it's just, it's what like philanthropy is kind of trying to do, right? That the CIA mm-hmm. has kind of perfected, which is that you know just like the sheer presence of just like their funding, like you said, Brian, mm-hmm. creates this like um this neutering effect, right? Yeah. Like even just like the fact that they have leverage to take your funding away if you're not really doing things the way that they want to, and it's just like ambiently there. They're not like directing you to write. Um, you know, kill us every day or anything, right? But like the yeah. fact that if you might cross a line, like maybe if you say something like ten or too harsh about um about Israel or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why like the Palest. I mean, sorry, but uh, Israel and Palestinian discourse. The reason why um basically every professor who has spoken against Israel is kind of cut out. You know, I, I don't think that that's an accident. Um, that there's like a big purge of pro-Palestinian people in academia most recently happened at UW actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. I had to bring yeah. that up is that, yeah, there was a UW historian who just lost their, you know, endowed chair and all their funding because they were critical of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. I mean, that just happened just like last week. Um, and that's not uncommon. Right. And, uh, yeah. and I mean, it's, it's, it's important that you brought up the thing about foundation money and stuff like too. I mean, this is kind of at our heart of our criticism of the Gates Foundation on Mechanical Freak, which is that the Gates Foundation, whether it does something that's good or bad, is really kind of immaterial to the point that it's a fundamentally anti-democratic organization, right? You know, mm-hmm. that it exists to push the values and agenda of the Gates family and Gates money. Um and if that temporarily aligns with your interests, that does not make it good all of a sudden, you yeah. know? And yeah, and, that, and you know, for academics, I think some are totally ignorant of where their money is coming from. And, you know, they're like the dog who doesn't realize they have a leash until their master pulls on it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are some who are aware of where the funding comes from, but think that, like, you know, it's a necessary evil and that they are can work outside of that or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and there's people who do, like, decent work like that, right? And there are some, like, I don't know, a Robert Conquest or a Michael McFall <laughs> or, you know, fill in your any, like, American-Russian historian. Uh, the Conquest is British, but fill in all these characters, right? And it's yeah. like... when you have a last uh, who, name, it's or, Conquest, I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> who literally worked for British intelligence before moving into academia. <laughs> uh, in the di- he worked in specifically in disinformation in the British intelligence. Oh, I mean, that's you awesome, can't write this dude. shit. Like, but, comic like, book shit. But uh, and became like the biggest historian in like Soviet studies, Western Soviet studies. But anyways, uh, you know, like some of those guys are like active. They know what they're doing. Like they're they're active agents, you know, but yeah, like yeah. but th- there's that whole sort of mix there. So uh, I don't know. Uh, form a Red Guard and attack your professor. That's all. No, no, no. Don't do <laughs> parody, parody, satire. Parody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Um, well, in that same vein, um, or one of the freaks writes, how did the government sell the public on their weak ass approach to denazification? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was a problem, actually. <laughs> um, so 
The answer is kind of multifaceted. The first thing they did was they just didn't tell anybody. So the fact that the U.S. brought like thousands of Nazis into the United States was not exactly something that the U.S. uh, bragged about (laughs) or said out loud or anything like that. Um, As far as I can know, the as far as I know, the first official like mainstream book about this, like written by a very down the middle author, etc. Right, uh, that really digs into this topic was written in like 2012 by a New York Times reporter named Eric Lichtbau called "The Nazis Holy Next shit. Door." Uh, this is not something that anybody's really wanted to look into. Now, I think that's for a variety of reasons. One, the U.S. government wasn't exactly being forthcoming about it, uh, but I mean, like. <laughs> There were like whole communities in like Illinois, New York, New Jersey, or whatever. That all of a sudden, just had this massive influx of like Germans and Eastern Europeans who all seemed to have one particular interest in common. I mean, there was stuff there that people probably could have run with it, but at the same time, like, do you really want to take the heat on that? Right? Do you really? And like, do you really want to see that? I, I think that's the thing too. That we forget about journalists and and stuff yeah. like that. Is that like you know how much do you really want to like know about something? <laughs> you know, um, that and those people did occasionally. They mainly would kill each other as like uh, payback. But like, it's not like they came to the U.S. and forgot how to kill or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but yes, I mean that that's one thing is that the U.S. wasn't exactly advertising the fact that it had totally switched sides on this. There were some things that they couldn't hide, like Werner von Braun, like being the head of fucking NASA. <laughs> 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 um, and people would bring that shit up. Like, uh, there's, uh, I'm totally gonna fuck this guy's name up. There's a musical comedian of the time who's, yeah, Tom Lair is his name, who has like a, who, was kind of like uh, the Daily Show, but with pianos or something. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of as bad as you're imagining, but um, yeah. But it's you know, cursed, had, it's a cursed image yeah. already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he had a whole song about Werner von Braun that was basically just about how you know he used to build rockets for the Nazis. Now he builds them for us. <laughs> you know, and like <laughs> you know, sort of poking fun at the u.s's infatuation with nazis um there's a major facility in houston that nasa operates they even named after a nazi concentration camp doctor uh but again i mean a lot of this just was that americans didn't know a lot about the holocaust uh the u.s very specifically uh had it's like the new york times had an official policy during the war not to report on the holocaust and not to mention that it was happening um the state department tried to you know maintain that across the board uh so americans didn't know a ton about the holocaust uh so like some of these characters maybe they weren't fully aware of who they were (laughs) yeah right um and then they did a very good job of whitewashing so verna von braun because people did know who he was and they did know his connections to the nazi regime uh they gave him a show disney produced a show for him where it was like a kid's science hour and Werner von Braun would like talk to your children, <laughs> you know, with the mouse's <laughs> consent. And, uh, you know, they, they did stuff like that to whitewash it. Uh, but people were upset. But I mean, you know, I guess that comes down to the issue of like, you know, America's not a democracy. So who cares in the end? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, the, like even if they knew, like the, this is kind of the argument we've been making is that even if, like, yeah, the U.S. did cover it up, so it just wasn't really public. But if like there was staunch um, disagreement with notification, uh, they'd probably just tell him to fuck off. You know, yeah. like, yeah, and uh, I mean, that, that, that doesn't really change much. And particularly immediately after the war, like Patton really does get into trouble when he talks about like, oh, my Nazis, so like they're going to join the American army <laughs> to <laughs> we're going to invade the Soviet Union. Like he really does. At, at one point, he refers to the, some reporter asks him about like, why are you so nice to the Nazis? And he's like, well, the Nazis are like any other political party, like the Republicans or the Democrats. Um, uh, and- not wrong. Not wrong, but uh, that that did cause quite a bit of like public commotion and blowback. And, you know, Truman had to constantly intervene with Patton and be like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> yeah, you need to yeah. shut up. Um, which, you know, Patton dies like hilariously. Uh, he, he just gets like hit by an out of control. I think it's a Jeep or something just rolls down a hill and hits him. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, like, a, like a Looney Tunes cartoon? Yeah, he like dies like a, a Looney Tunes style. And, I, and, and there was, was some conspiracy theorizing that maybe that he was gotten rid of because he was such an idiot. But, he you was know. Just such a, yeah, such an idiot yeah. who just couldn't keep his mouth shut that he had to like get to, uh, ra- steamrolled by like a Jeep. Uh, grand cherokee <laughs> yeah we gotta we gotta silence this guy yeah but um yeah. but yeah uh you know so i mean there was like public anger over these things but a lot of that is going to get covered up by the cold war which we're going to talk about coming up here and the uh, intense feeling that you would be punished for saying anything that could be perceived as pro-communist go ahead and throw into that category of pro-communist sentiment that the nazis are bad Right. Like, you know, any sort of criticism of the U.S. policy in Germany or what the U.S. is doing is going to get subsumed by Cold War paranoia, Mm -hmm. etc. I mean, it would be crazy for the U.S. to be supporting open Nazis in another country Mm. and you not be allowed to criticize that as if it were a bad thing. Couldn't imagine that happening today. I don't know (laughs) how that would happen today. I don't know how like people would ever tolerate that or fall for that obvious bullshit. And, uh, you know, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Look, there's limits to the imagination. So yeah, shit. Uh, a good movie to watch on this, by the way, which I think does kind of get at uh, this idea that there was a tension around this at the time. This is a movie uh, from 1961 called Judgment at Nuremberg that's about the Nuremberg trials. But most importantly, it's about the U.S. essentially ending the Nuremberg trials. Mm. And it takes the, you know, your lead character is one of the prosecutor, prosecuting attorneys for the United States, uh, for the U.S. government, right? And he is essentially coming into conflict with his superiors who are telling him, look, it's time to wrap these trials up. We're not doing this anymore. And he is essentially torn between his desire to punish the Nazis for having done this horrific crime and uh, the fact that his career is going to come to an end if he keeps trying to do that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he essentially sat down at one point and they just tell him, look, the Soviet Union's the enemy now, which means the Germans are our friends. Yeah. Right. So you can't keep putting them in jail or keep like you have to you have to drop the Nazi thing. Um, Yeah. Get over it. Grow up. Yeah. Which is a a real thing that happened with the Nuremberg trials. But also, I think the fact that came out in 61 shows the and was uh, one 
multiple Academy Awards and stuff like that. It was a big movie when it came out. I think shows the extent to which there was uh, still tension around the U.S.'s policy regarding denazification and uh, the sort of start of the Cold War. Right. Right. Okay, cool. Well, those were all great questions. (laughs) We have one more question here, Brian, and it's a long one. All right. So uh, let's uh, close it out with this. This might be out of the scope of the first half of the 20th century. Okay, well, let's just dismiss it then. All right, yeah. Well, I mean, fucking, I mean, listen on, listen on. Like, what the fuck? Do you have, like, ADHD? Like Everybody wants spoilers. Seriously. You guys just want the spoilers and you don't have the patience to watch watch the art. Just want the spark notes these days. These kids, you know, we used to look each other in our eyes and now we just look at our phones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> gonna take a picture of, uh, like, you know, the American Nazis, like Philly Madison Square Garden, just do the. This used to be a real country. Yeah. <laughs> we used to be a country, a proper a country. country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. I hate this well, so much. Anyways, yeah, go ahead. This get, shit get, sucks. Sorry, listener. This is a great question. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've derailed it so badly, but let's, let's, let's keep going. The most detailed and like thought out question is the yeah. one that we decide to. <laughs> yeah, because because it's like this is a running long that we're just gonna be dicks about. For yeah. Some reason. yeah. <laughs> All right. In the latest episode, a lot of the discussion slash monologue was on how the U.S. was able to big dog the other countries into the Bretton Woods Agreement, and then later Nixon destroyed it on a presidential whim. But now, the U.S. no longer has the position or strength other countries to so blindly follow along. In your opinion, what is the cause of this? Is it because of the decline in the strength of the empire or is it the U.S.'s decline because it can no longer enforce its will so easily on the rest of the world? So much of the world in its grasp after World War II, how or why did the U.S. bungle things so badly as to be losing its position? Yeah, I mean, you know, hey, look, welcome to the question of the late 20th century. Right? <laughs> I mean, this is like basically the premise of like <laughs> this short. Like, this is like the question that I think everyone's trying to answer. Like, what I think what Greg Grant is really trying to get at and explore, and what we really are for this whole show. So, um, I mean, the short answer is like listen on because like we there's mm-hmm. no way that I think we can give a full fleshed out satisfying answer in the time i think time frame you know that we have for this because literally i think the next the next third of this whole series is trying to answer this question is what what happens when you know you reach that end um of your empire right and the end of the myth that drives the empire forward is kind of like Mm -hmm. grandin's point um and I mean, like the short answer is that it doesn't happen um, all at once. It's a it's a lot of events that lead up um, for decades. That when I guess you have you know built up contradiction in your system, like for instance, I, I like to think of the analogy of a car that drives off of a cliff, but you know that car is still moving forward as if it's on a road, right? Even though it's not like gravity is going to catch up, but the wheels are still spinning. The car's still going straight. Right. 
Um, but eventually that car is going to dip down and fall, you know, and um, the U.S. has put itself in a position, I think, where, um, you know, we have been kind of going off of this cliff and it's only a matter of time where how, how much leverage can we have to just keep that car, you know, floating along. But, you know, we know that with um, capitalism, it comes uh, and specifically the U.S. Uh, type of capitalism when we, you know, transition into neoliberalism as well. Um, is that you're here for a good time and not a long time, right? And, you know, <laughs> as wise philosopher Drake once said. And, yeah, uh, hey, that time is yeah. getting shorter by the second, let yeah, me tell yeah, you. Yeah, right. But, but like, the, I mean, that's like the, the concise, like, conceptual answer like is that, and that's what we're like trying to explore. But, you know, there are, there are some like, you know, material reasons for why, um, mm. you know, that happens. But like conceptually, um, you know, that's what is actually happening. That's like what forces are kind of um, coalescing. Fundamental contradictions of capitalism must boil over sometimes, and they can eat, they can be resolved by a couple of things. Uh, but uh, I think Wolf made it uh, pretty clear in his argument too, is that, uh, you know, there's just signs of decline and we can study the decline of other, you know, big world powers like Britain is a really common example because that's recent. The Britain was really America before America, yeah. you know, it was America uh, in that sense. A lot of shared cultural uh, ticks and things like that as well. <laughs> like, exactly. At least hint towards uh, what we can look forward to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, and I think with Britain too, I, I think like a mistake when we hear decline, it sounds, um, sounds like some like Michael Bay film or something, right. Where like you just see the total like collapse of society and it's rubble. Um, I think Britain's a better example in that it's still a powerful nation, right? Like it's not, mm. it's not like it's just, um, ashes everywhere. And just like, you know, uh, people, uh, you know, fighting for sticks to eat or something, even though that's basically the equivalent of British food. I'm, you know, I'm <laughs> sorry, but it is. <laughs> owned Britain. But, yeah, better owned. Food. <laughs> but their hegemonic power um, has completely um, deteriorated. And that's like due to, um, you know, a lot of different factors. Their empire um, overextended, though war was like really costly. And like, you know, eventually there were just like fundamental contradictions within the metropole of their empire and, you know, the outer peripheries where like places were starting to decolonize their, their grip over the world. It takes a lot to manage a global empire. Right. And like, you know, uh, there are like small things where um, other countries can get more powerful like the U.S. did. Um, right now, what's happening in the U.S. is that China is getting a lot more powerful, too. The United States enforces global hegemony by essentially impoverishing, um, you know, uh, other countries. Right. And when um, a competing force to U.S. hegemony, whether that is uh, China, uh, which is you know controlled by the Communist uh, Party of China, and also other competing capitalist uh, empires like uh, like Russia and like yeah. Germany, you know, yeah, um, like the European Union, one that we don't the think European about a lot. Union. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, those are all uh, growing in scope, which are threatening the U.S.'s empire. Now, the West all have the same, I think, general like goal of defending like you know like Western capitalism, but in between, those are competing empires, right? And that. Their sheer presence and strength um, 
versus where Russia was at, uh, you know, in like 1998, for instance, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, they're now more powerful where the U.S. just doesn't have the same type of totalizing grip on them. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it involves a lot of factors. Uh, people in the country are not really bought into empire as they used to be. Like when capitalism grinds down your wages to the point where your, um, you know, wages have been stagnant since, you know, the late 70s or so, uh, while, uh, you know, corporate profits are at an all-time high and the wealth has been uh, distributed up to gilded age levels, uh, you know, that is going to cause some problems like managing your domestic uh, citizens in your empire, right? There's going to be more unrest. There's going to be less trust in the system. Um, you know, that that is a sign of uh, decline as well. Uh, so, you know, those things kind of coalesce into perfect storms in a way where, uh, you know, you can get a less firm grip on you know, a global hegemonic power in a way. Yeah. And I mean, to kind of add on to that a little bit by just uh, attacking something in this question here, that's an interesting thing to think about is we forget about the contingencies and sort of ironies of history, which is the U.S. position following World War II is very good. I think the U.S. empire, from the capitalist perspective, did about as well as it possibly could have. Uh, in the that's when they truly emerged as like a superpower yeah. is after World War II. Yeah, and I mean, the U.S. really gets its hooks into everything, and it, and it's kind of impressive given the total incompetence of American, you know, American <laughs> capitalist class since then. But, uh, you know, one of the sort of ironies is the reason the U.S. was able to do that was that the traditional industrial bases of Europe and even the rising industrial base in Japan have been thoroughly destroyed, right? Yep. And one of the ironies is, is as those countries recovered from the war, one of the things they did is they rebuilt their industrial bases. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, right? And we'll get into some of this as we talk about the book a little further. But they rebuilt their industrial bases. They re- rebuilt them with brand new machine tools that were more efficient than older American industrial machine tools. They rebuilt them with none of the debt overhead that comes from having operated businesses continuously over decades, right? Uh, which, again the American business faced. They also rebuilt with much more streamlined state models that were much more function, like for functionally better for competition. For instance, in France and Germany, they had national health care, which meant that health care was something that businesses didn't have to be involved in or pay for in any way. It didn't have to be part of workers' wages or anything like that, which gave them a distinct competitive advantage against U.S. industry. This becomes very important in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, the Japanese, same way, right? Like they rebuilt the war allowed them to rebuild in a way to make essentially more modern countries that are just better situated to compete economically with the United States on a world stage, even though they might be demographically smaller and things like that. Mm. Uh, And that is part of the story. It's not the whole story, but it's part of the story of American decline. And this thing when we talk about where uh, they mentioned that Nixon gets off the gold standard and sort of breaks Bretton Woods on a whim, he didn't do that on a whim. He did that because France was demanding that the U.S. The French realized that the U.S. dollar had uh, suffered a significant amount of inflation, and that this idea that you know the thirty-six dollars per ounce of gold standard that the U.S. was you know maintaining via Bretton Woods. 
that there was a real bargain to be had there, that that dollar was not worth that much, actually. And so the French just took all the dollars in their foreign reserves and just started saying, gold, please, which was the promise of Bretton Woods, was that you could exchange your American dollars for gold. Therefore, you didn't need to have any sort of, you know, material-based currency or anything like that, and that the U.S. dollar could serve as the international currency, right? You know, because it was, you know, backed in this real thing. It was the, the uh, uh, is it Tether, which is the one that's supposed to be, uh, yeah. like, one for one dollar? Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was the Tether of its time, and that it was also complete bullshit. And so the French demand the fucking gold, right? And... At one point, they're loading ships in New York Harbor with fucking gold from the American gold reserves and sending them to France, which when Nixon hears about this, loses his fucking mind. And is like, what the fuck are y'all doing? We don't actually follow through on these things. Like, if somebody yeah. comes asking for the gold, you don't say yes. Like, I right. like following the rules, you idiots. And uh, <laughs> according to legend... Uh, one of the ships is literally leaving New York Harbor and Nixon has it called back. Uh, oh, wow. It, 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 you know, instead of sending it to France. But yeah, we had sent at least one ship like laden with gold to France, <laughs> not realizing so, like, oh, we weren't serious about that exchange. actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, that comes because the sort of economic situations in the US had declined and the economic situation in France had increased. And now France, we talked about inter-imperialist rivalries and how they play at every level well france was playing the rival rivalry at the level of economics and diplomacy right Mm -hmm. and they're like well if the u.s uh thinks it can keep us under its thumb well how about this we're just gonna take all your fucking gold from you because we got a lot of worthless worthless dollars like (laughs) we can exchange that very easily uh and it created like a bit of a crisis between the u.s and france briefly but uh you know, that's that's how these things sort of play out historically. So, uh, yeah, to Moody's point, stay tuned. We're going to get a lot more into this, but mm-hmm. there, there's just some some taste and flavor of things to come. <laughs> oh, yeah. Big time. All right, Brian. Well, uh, that was a good Q&A session. I'm, it's always a pleasure to do these. Um, uh, when, I guess we close out. Uh, do you have any book recommendations uh, for this kind of era, like stuff that like either inspired you or that you like to read or good further reading? Yeah, yeah. You know, our, our further reading section. One, I mean, I encourage everybody, if you haven't already, if you're listening to this show and you're enjoying it, go take a look at the suggested reading sections on our webpage. Uh, there's tons of stuff in there from each episode. Uh, where we, you know, we cite our sources and whatnot. But at the same time, we have a ton of links to material, articles and stuff you can read and things like that, that if you're interested in U.S. history are are worth looking through. So I encourage everybody to look at that. Uh, for this time period, I actually have a couple of book suggestions to throw out here. Uh, one is Gabriel Kolko's The Triumph of Conservatism, which is about the progressive era. And I think he was the maybe not the first, but the first to go really hard on attacking the myths of the progressive era, uh, things like Teddy Roosevelt as trust buster, uh, the idea that there was some sort of uh, heightened anti-monopoly sort of legal frameworks being created and things like that. And Coco basically explains that what's actually happening is that 
capitalism through the state is rationalizing American industry, meaning it's not getting rid of the monopoly. It's strengthening the monopoly Mm. by using the state to shore up the weaker points of larger firms. And it's a very good book, very much is written, I think, in 62, very much still an important read today, uh, if you want to understand not just the progressive era, but like how the state works, like how the modern state functions. I think it's very important. The other one would be Bruce Cummings' The Korean War. Uh, you like no uh, hard feelings to Bruce for emailing me back that he wanted to be on the show and then never <laughs> having hearing from him again. Uh, I still stand Bruce Cummings' work as a historian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but his book, The Korean War, is like the biggest source that we use for our discussion of the Korean war in this episode and for me and Justin's discussion on it. Um, It's a fantastic book about the history of the Korean war uh, following the actual like imperial politics of the whole thing. It also is sort of a meta history about writing history um, where he really gets into like how memory is created about the war and things like that. Uh, it's also a blissfully short, I think, 300 pages and well-written, easy read. Wow. So a strong recommendation, not just for history nerds. He has some much longer things about Korea, which are also very good, but are not as readable. Um, but the Korean War is, is very good. Uh, it'll give you the history of the war that you need. He even talks about basically follows it all the way up to today. And I think he gives a very good explanation about why the U.S. is so neurotic about korea and makes a good argument for why we should like actually demilitarize the korean peninsula and use diplomacy instead of you know whatever to resolve the issue on the peninsula but uh very good book so strong recommend Uh, moon yeah what do you what do you got for us yeah 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 so um i have a couple so uh, first, re- really comes to mind, like learning about World War II, um, a really good introduction, I think, to uh, what was happening in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union um, was Black Shirts and Reds by Michael Parenti, um, a classic, uh, absolute banger. Uh, this is a book that is extremely readable. Um very short i think it's i don't want to say very but like you know it's like around 100 pages or so i think like yeah, 100 not crazy long. something Maybe pages something like yeah that, it's like 150 pages you yeah. could read it in a weekend easily yeah. yeah yeah and and you know parenti's writing style i think is really really great you don't um you know you're talking about readability brian like this is something where um the separates i think like good authors from great authors is that um it's all of the substance while still having it being extremely engaging and easy to read and not like kind of just bogged down with them a lot of jargon. So it really kind of almost reads uh, like a movie in some cases, but I think that you don't really get this type of history uh, from an explicitly like um, left and communist uh, perspective. uh, That is like basically a really good and honest look at the Soviet union as well as what kind of happened with, uh, Nazi Germany um, and how uh, you know the Soviet Union I uh, think won uh, that war. So um, and also later on, uh, he kind of talks about the history of how the Soviet Union came to an end uh, in the second half of Black Shirts and Reds, which we will probably get into in uh, the mm-hmm. latter half of our uh, <laughs> of, of our uh, series on ending the myth. So um, yeah, it's yeah. really great. 
It's it's a great book from Parenti, and again, kind of like Cummings' book, it has a bit of a meta historical narrative running through it too, and that he's talking about both the Soviet Union, you know, as it existed, and the you know, fascism as it existed, and part of his narrative is explaining why we get it wrong and like why we've come to believe wrong things about it essentially yeah, right right and a lot of times in a good i think a good history book that is as much an important part of the explanation as like the actual just what happened um because ultimately uh the details of what happened you might forget or whatever time but if you internalize how narratives get created and why they get created and things like that. That's, that's an important life skill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's good media literacy. Yep. Um, on the last questions point, if you want to actually do a deeper dive into that question of how the U S is a declining empire with declining power. Um, there's this good book called first class passengers on a seeking ship by Richard Latchman. Um, it is admittedly kind of an esoteric book. Um, Richard Latchman is an academic like professor, um, and, but it is a really solid uh, book, like written pretty recently and does a really good job of analyzing different empires that declines and makes the case for why the U.S. is basically in an irreversible um, imperial decline. Um, and so I think that if you want to like have more uh, readings on that, uh, that book by Richard Latchman is good. Yeah, if you want to bum yourself out further. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that, look, that uh, Imperial decline, uh, you should only care about it if you're uh, profiting from the empire. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me tell you, the, the pennies they give you for the empire are not worth it. No, let no. It, let yeah, it fall, that, baby. That, that, includes it your, that includes your 401k. I'm sorry, that's pennies compared to what is actually yeah. being made here. All right. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, and last one that was just like really essential for uh, this period of research in the 1930s and the Great Depression for me was Robin D.G. Kelly's book, Hammer and Ho, about Alabama communists uh, organizing in like the antebellum uh, South, organizing black sharecroppers and how the Communist Party really kind of rose. And that's just like the second half of the story of the New Deal and like, you know, how the CIO formed. Um and these are like, you know, Kelly has a lot of different primary sources. And it's a story that's like really hard to tell because these communists are actually good. Unlike, um, unlike <laughs> you know, in social media now where we, you know, have uh, zero sense of OPSEC, they don't really have many documents of their work because, you know, they could have. Because somebody breaking into their house and killing them was actually a real possibility. It was a very real about. possibility. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that did occasionally happen, yeah. Yeah, Hammer yeah. and Ho is such a good book. And I think part of it, I remember reading this uh, in college and what really struck is somebody who is doing a lot of labor history in college. Uh, it's a labor history about two things that you don't think about in labor history, which is rural regions, right? You mm -hmm. know, agricultural workers, things like that. But this, and also the American South, right? Yeah. And uh, that is largely written out of American labor history, I, I think, for reasons, right? But like, it's largely written out of it. And you could live your whole life, as I had, thinking uh, that unions just never existed in the South, that there never was labor organizing or much less radical labor organizing. And uh, Robin Kelly's book, I think, really blows that myth up, right? And uh, it makes it an important book. I, I think it's if you're, especially if you're into labor history, this is must read territory. <laughs> Um, oh no oh my god i just 
looked up Richard Latchman, and it looks like Richard Latchman uh, recently passed away in September 19th, 2021. Um, that's, that's really sad. Rest in peace to Richard Latchman. Uh, I, you know, look, treasure these people while they're around. Uh, there was another historian that I was like, oh, man, he'd be great for our show. He does a lot of interviews. I bet we could get him on. And when I went to go find some sort of contact for him, found out he had died like three months prior to like even having this thought. I was like, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Hey, life is short, guys. Uh, getting shorter by the day. Mm-hmm. Um, well, on that cheery note, <laughs> uh, you know, we want to close out with just some thank yous. You know, we want to thank all our beloved freaks. Uh, I love y'all. Yeah, on the Discord for sending questions in, for listening. The questions were great, even if we answered them poorly or made fun of you in the process. <laughs> uh, we want to make sure we thank all our guests who've come on the show. Uh, you know, this this bit around Justin Roll, Ryan Archibald, uh, Richard Wolf, the man, the legend. Right. <laughs> thank everybody for coming on. Uh, Bjorn and Carl, Bjorn for making our show music, Carl for helping us out with uh, all the badass uh, images, right? And uh, Colin, man, hey, thanks for like fix like doing the website for us. <laughs> all the technical shit is done by Colin. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Colin so we- is very much like you know basically makes our show happen. Uh, both mechanical freak and ending the myth like i don't know how we would publish it without colin yeah uh two people that hilariously will just email colin at like 2 a.m and be like uh here's the audio could you have it up in a few hours for us thank you (laughs) (laughs) so thanks to everybody uh for helping us make this show possible it's been uh you know, it's, we're, uh, what, I guess 250 years into America's history at this point. It's been a wonderful, you know, going back to the colonial time period. <laughs> what a wonderful 250 years. I can only imagine what the post-50s world has in store for us. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> what sights we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess then we'll leave on uh, this line. To the end of history, right? (laughs) Straight to the the end. end. (laughs) (laughs) All right, bye, everybody. Bye.
del otro lado de la frontera dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de ese Space, space, space.